We have been going through a series for quite some time on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus and kind of going through, if you will, a mini-series on that last Passover night. It's been a busy night for the disciples and for the Lord, but it's been also a busy week. They have entered into Jerusalem uh, with the adoring crowds, at least for a little while. And they were teaching and going to the temple and observing things that Jesus is teaching. And the preparation of Passover takes effort. And the disciples have gone through the symbolic meal and the supper. Jesus has instituted what we commonly call the Lord's Supper or communion, made things a little different. Also, uh, wash the disciples' feet instead of just the hands. And so Jesus has been teaching by word and by deed. And it's been a long night. But now after the meal has taken place, uh, there's usually teaching. And Jesus is doing two things. One, he told his disciples that he would let them know things in advance so that they might have faith when these things happen. And he's also teaching because he knows his time is short uh, with them. And so if you'll... Turning your Bibles to John chapter uh, 13, starting with verse 31. It says, now when he had gone out, that he is Judas. Judas has been told to, to do what he's going to do quickly, and he's going out to uh, make the final preparation for his betrayal. And so Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So he's telling the disciples that what we may perceive and what you may perceive as something, as a tragedy, as something that maybe God is not in control of. Jesus is saying, what is going to happen and it's going to happen immediately. God is going to be glorified. God is going to be magnified. God is going to be increased. And in turn, God is going to increase and magnify Jesus because of what he's doing. And he's going to do that immediately. So there is a sense, if you will, when people look at the cross as a sense of defeat, God looks at it as magnification, as glorifying him. And so Jesus is preparing them. And so he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer, and you will seek me as I said to the Jews now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he tells them that he's leaving, which I'm sure comes as a surprise and as a disappointment and maybe even a, a part of a concern on the path of the disciples because they've been following him for three and a half years. Uh, they know that the Jews have been out to take his life and maybe even to take theirs. And so there's this sense of, well, wait a minute. You're our teacher. You're, you're the Messiah. You're our protector. You're going. What, what's this all about? And, and so in this context, he's telling them, this is what I want you to do while I'm gone. So he says, a new commandment I give to you. So first off, I want to, before I tell, we say what the commandment is, notice number one, it's a commandment, not a suggestion. All right. So I'm going to give you some suggestions to show you the difference. 
uh, there is some suggestions or advice that what you should do upon getting out of bed is make your bed. People will tell you that you ought to do that because there's at least one thing that you've accomplished that day and so that you can feel good about yourself. Now, that's good advice. I don't do it. My kind of attitude is I'm going back in a few hours anyway, so why make it? But there are people that says it is a very valuable thing to do. There is also a suggestion to say that if you get angry before you say anything or do anything, count to 10. Now, sometimes I do that. Most of the time I don't. I just react. But it's, a, it's good advice. It's a good suggestion. But Jesus isn't giving us suggestions. He's giving us a commandment, a command, which means he's the commander. Also, it also tells us that he is equating what he is now about to do as the same thing as when God spoke to Moses and gave him more than 600 and plus commands and the, the 10 commandments and therefore the two great ones to love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is saying, in essence, by my making this command, I'm saying I'm God and that you are to do this. So what is it that we're to do? So a new commandment I give to you, not a suggestion, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus has been teaching about love throughout his entire earthly ministry. He has told us to love our neighbor and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that's quoted from the scriptures. However, he kind of expanded that concept by expanding what a neighbor is. He also taught that we're to love our enemies and to pray for them, where before is pretty much get rid of your enemies. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to love one another, but not just love in the sense how you might think, but love as I have loved you. Now, this expands the concept of love. Because when the command says, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, as I repeatedly say, because it's true, to me, that's a very high standard. Because I love me a lot. I take me wherever I go. I laugh at all of my jokes. I think what I think is very important. And so I am told to love my neighbor as I love myself. But Jesus didn't say to love each other the way we love each other, but he said to love each other as he has loved us, which means that we self-sacrifice for one another. We become servants to each other. It's no longer a matter of, well, I'm important because I'm the pastor, therefore you must do. No, no. I am to love you the way Jesus did and to give of myself for you. So he tells us that's what we're to do and that's how we're to do it. Then he says something very interesting. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, usually you'll hear a lot of people talking about, well, what we need to do is share the gospel. Yes, we do. And the scriptures and Jesus has told us the Great Commission that we're supposed to declare who he is. And yes, but the de declaration being evangelist does not tell people who we are. 
Attending perfect attendance at church doesn't confirm we're his disciples. Even doing good deeds doesn't necessarily tell people who we are. Jesus says, you want to know to let people know that you are really my disciple, that you're really following me, then love one another the way I have loved you. Because that love is foreign to this world. This world only knows about love that, that is somehow is good to me. The romantic love, or even brotherly love in the sense of we love as family. But Jesus is saying, no, no, you're to love as God loved. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That's the type of love that we're to have, and that's the type of presentation that people will know that we are his. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Good question. You're saying you're taking off. And so Peter goes, and you know, and Peter's usually the spokesman. I don't know if he's the official spokesman or he's the guy who just talks a lot and he always says something first, but he goes, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. Now notice, he doesn't specifically answer Peter's question. Peter asks, where are you going? And Jesus says, you can't come. It's a different answer. Because I think if Jesus really told Peter where he was going, it would be very difficult for Peter to understand. So Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter, you know, Jesus, I love you. I've been following you for three and a half years. I'll die with you. I know the Jews are out to get you. If that's what it's all about, I'm there. Count me in. Jesus answered, Now, it depends on your concept of God. How he answers this, how he makes a statement of the warning to Peter will probably interpret the way you said, will you lay down your life for me? So he asked Peter the question. I don't think he asked it angrily. I don't think he asked it accusatively. I think he asked it lovingly as a matter of fact. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus is saying, there's barely going to be several hours that pass that you're going to deny me three times. All too often, we have a greater belief of our faith than our faith actually believes. Now, there will come a time that Peter will lay down his life for the Lord. As a matter of fact, he will do so in such a way that he says, when you crucify me, I am not worthy to die the way my Lord did, to crucify me upside down. So there will come a time that he will give his life for the Lord, but it's not now because one, his faith is not yet fully realized. 
Because the difference between Peter now and the Peter later is the resurrection. And so Peter has this belief in his faith until that faith is confirmed. So Jesus says, no, you'll deny me. Now John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. So notice he doesn't follow up with, aha, I told you so, you're a terrible guy. He goes, do not let your heart be troubled. He's comforting them. He's reassuring them. He's saying, yes, I'm leaving. And yeah, you're going to deny me. But don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in God. A simple statement. All too often, we believe in circumstances. When things go well, then God must like us. When things go well unwell, then God must be mad. Don't believe in circumstances, Jesus is saying. Believe in God. Put your faith in God, not circumstances. Believe also in me. Have that faith in Christ. Yes, I'm leaving for a little while, but you can still believe in me as you can believe in God. So while he has gone away, he has told them to love one another as he has loved them, and he's told them to believe in God and to believe also in him. And then he gives them some additional comfort in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, or in some of your translations, mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's telling them, I know I give a lot of parables, and some of these parables are stories that give spiritual understanding. He goes, my discussion about going to prepare a place, not a parable. I go to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house are many dwelling places. But we're not so I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Psalms 23 says, For I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the whole concept of heaven is awesome. When I was a young man, I didn't think so. I thought it was boring. It sounded like a bunch of angels playing harps, and I didn't play harp and don't like that style of music anyway. So, really boring. Until you fall in love with God then heaven is an outstanding place. It's not just about playing harp. We read about the streets of gold that are so pure that you can see through it. We see about the temple, and we see all of these wonderful aspects of what heaven is. But if you will, those are all there. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for it's personal. I'm preparing. The place I prepare for Joe is going to be different than the place that he prepares for Libby. Probably much better because she deserves it. But it's going to be personal. Probably in my place there won't be any family pictures because I don't have family pictures here. I like pictures of people I don't know and, and landscapes. She likes pictures of the family, and so there'll probably be lots of pictures of the family. But 
He's going to prepare a place for us personally. So he goes, I'm going away, so I'm going to be busy. But notice, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's saying, I'm going away, and I'm going to be busy preparing a place for you. But don't worry, because I'm coming back to get you. And I'm coming back to get you, to bring you to this place that I'm preparing for you. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And that there we will dwell not only in the house of the Lord, but in the house with the Lord forever. And he goes, and you know the way where I am going. Notice he doesn't say where he's going because it's already evident where he's going. So you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? You didn't tell Peter where you're going. You just said you're going to your father's house to prepare a place. Well, we don't know how to get there. We don't know the way because we're not even sure where it is you're leaving to. And Jesus said to him, I am. Now, first off, that's a very big and significant clue. I am that I am. When Moses asked God, what's your name? What do I tell the children of Israel when I go there? What do I call your name? And he says, I am. I am that I am. And Jesus is saying, I am, I am that I am, and I am presently and have always been and shall always be the way. Now, I've shared this before and I'll share it again. I went to a, a law school that, that had a um, belief in Christian values and and had a denominational background um, at that school. And it was very plain in, in, the, in the, um, all their publications and their, uh, so it wasn't a secret that, that they had this Christian belief and that they were going to teach in a Christian setting. And there were a number of people who were upset with the fact that it had Christian basis. And I go, they didn't lie to you. They told you where they were coming from. If you don't like it, you could have gone to a different law school. But I had this acquaintance friend as we were going through, and I made it obvious that I was a believer. So we had this conversation, and, and his statement was, Joe, you're such a reasonable person. But when it comes to this salvation, you're unreasonable because you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. My response to him was, we take this cover and we decide to call it black. We can call it any color you want. Call it blue, green, purple, chartreuse. It doesn't matter. But once we agree to call it black, it is not unreasonable to call it black. It's simply being accurate. If Jesus said, 
he is the way and he is the way. Then to say that he is the way is not being unreasonable. It is being accurate. And quite frankly, it's not me who's being unreasonable because I didn't set the standard. Jesus did. Jesus said, you want to come to the Father? You got to go through him because he and the Father are one. So he is the way. He is the road. He is the journey to the Father. But in this journey, he is also the destination. So he is the way. And not only that, he is the truth. He's not a truth. When, when Pilate would later ask Jesus, well, what is truth? The answer to what is truth? Jesus. It's not a story. It's not a rational conclusion. It is the truth. And truth is not relative. It is absolute. Now you'll find people who will say, well, there is nothing absolute. And here's a question I would give you to ask them. Are you absolutely sure? Because if they're absolutely sure, then there's at least one absolute, which means they're wrong. So he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. He's not a life. He is the life. He is what gave us life, and he is what gives us eternal life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one. No one. No one. No exceptions. Comes to the Father but except through him. Jesus is exclusionary. Therefore, I am exclusionary because I believe what he taught. And since he came from the Father and he says he's the way, then guess what? He's the way. If he wanted to make it a different way, he could have chosen to make it a different way. And quite frankly, if I were in charge I would have come up with a different plan because the whole idea of sending your son to die on a cross for a bunch of people who even claim to have faith who are pretty faithless. I had chosen something different. But you see, God so loved us. This is his way. If you had known me, you have known my father also. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. Jesus was telling them, you want to know who God is? Take a look at me. I suspect Jesus was probably 5'6", five, 5'7", five, because at that time, people weren't all that tall. We get the idea he was probably 6'7", and 300 pounds, and whatever, or he's Milva milk toast and he's such a wimp that, but he's saying, when you see me, you are seeing the invisible, immortal, God only wise. 
everything that you can understand about God, look at me. That's who he is. I, if you had known me, you would know the Father because you see me by seeing him and seeing him, you see me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I don't know how Jesus would have reacted because I'm not Jesus. This would have hurt me. My response would have been kind of as Jesus was. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? I've walked with you three and a half years. I have taught. I've healed the sick. I have raised the dead. I've given sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. I've cast out demons. I've showed you truth that you do not understand and you still don't know who I am. And you still don't know that the Father and I are one. That everything I do is because the Father has directed me and I follow him. Yes. In, in my human humanity, I'd have probably said, Father, can you give me three and a half more years because I need some more guys. Because these guys just aren't cutting it. Because I spent, I spent all this time showing me who I am and they still are asking to see you. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It doesn't compute, Philip. So Jesus does what Jesus does. He continues to encourage and to teach. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So he's, okay, you quite don't understand. So now I'm going to give you the words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Jesus is saying, you know me. You know I am the truth. Therefore, what I say to you, you should believe that I and the Father are one. So believe my testimony. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus said, okay, if you can't accept totally my testimony of who I am, then take a look around at all that I've done, all that I have demonstrated. That should tell you who I am. As I've just said before, he raised the dead. He healed us. He did something that no Old Testament prophet ever did. He opened the hearing of death. He gave sight to the blind. He did what the scriptures said the Messiah would do. So believe his testimony, 
or believe the works that he did, Philip. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So Jesus is going back saying, yeah, I'm leaving, but it's good because when I go, those of you who do believe will do the same works I did. And quite frankly, will even do greater works. Now, when you look at this initially, you go, wait a minute, how can this be? Jesus healed many people, but Jesus healed people he came in contact with. There are hospitals that have been built and sustained by believers, whether they're Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or whatever, who heal sick people by the thousands. Greater works do we do than him because there are more of us and the spirit there working with us. All too often we're so wrapped up in what God can do for me as opposed to what God can do through me. Or someone else. And this is going to be possible because he's going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, you're going to hear this a lot. You'll probably hear it preached a lot. And you'll especially hear it on TV evangelists who want your money. And saying, if you'll send them some money, that you'll get a whole bunch more money back. And they'll ask, and you can ask for anything, and God will give it to you. I do not believe that that is what Jesus is saying. So let me give you a, a, an example. I have an ATM card. It has my name on it. If I tell you to go to Walgreens and I give you my pen, and I say, buy for me my medication. I've authorized you to use my ATM card, which is in my name. So you dutifully go to Walgreens and pay for the medication, whatever then you've done that in my name. But if while you're there, you go, you know, I'd like to get a Coke, maybe some candy, and some shampoo, I don't know, whatever you want. You know. And I know it's ATM, and I know whatever, and so now I buy that. You use my name, but you used it in vain. Because I did not authorize you to use my card for you. I've authorized you to use my card for what I told you to use my card. 
In the Ten Commandments, we are told that we are not to take the Lord thy God's name in vain. And you'll hear more people talk about, well, that means you shouldn't use God and a swear word together. Or, shorten it, we don't even say that. We'll, we'll use Jesus as the Messiah, as a curse word. And some people will even put H in there to change the curse word or whatever. And they're, and, and they're thinking that is what it means to take God's name in vain. That's only a subpart. It means to declare to the world that you're his disciple and you don't act like it or be like it. That's taking his name in vain. And so when Jesus says, ask what you will in my name, which means that you do it for Jesus's purposes, not for yours. Or you see, even Jesus asked for things. In a few hours, he's going to ask that this cup pass from him. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why did Jesus say, well, I asked in my name, and I get it. Because there are greater things about. And so my view of this is when we ask anything in his name, is because we're asking it for him, by him, through him, for his glory, for his magnification, while he is absent from us. And to use this verse that says, I can get whatever I want, is taking his name in vain. Now, that's not as popular because more people give us money if we say, you know, just name it, claim it, send it in, and God get, you know, send us a bunch of money. And if, if you do, then ask the special thing, and it's not magic. What we've turned this statement into a concluding prayer. God, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do the other thing. I want you to bless this person, bless that person. Okay, God, I've given you your marching orders. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And therefore we think because we said in Jesus' name, God is therefore compelled to do it. That's taking God's name in vain because you're acting as God, not God. The hubris of telling God what to do is amazing. We should follow Jesus' example. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he's going to conclude this part of his discussion about being gone. With going right back to love. If you love me. If you love me. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. Not my suggestions. My commandments. If we love God then we do what God has told us to do. Believe in God, believe in Jesus, love one another as he has loved us.
And by doing those things, we express our love for him. We love to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. But how do we sing back, I love Jesus? I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. For my actions tell him so. What do you get a God that has everything? You simply do what he tells you to do. And that is how you express your love. Because God needs nothing. God doesn't even need you. To express our love for him is by doing what he told us to do. But pastor, we're saved by grace. Yes, we are. Through faith, amen. That's a gift from God. But when Jesus says, do you love me? He's going to, in a number of days later, he's going to ask Peter, do you love me? I'll ask him three times. And he keeps saying, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He doesn't say, Peter, have this warm and fuzzy about me. He says, do what I tell you to do. I'm not saying that we're to be pharisaical because Lord knows doing things because he told us to do it is a good start. But doing things because we love him is where he wants us to go. I love you, or I try to love you the way he loved you. Not just because he told me to, but because I love him. Because I love him, he told me to do it. And I'm going to love you because I, and if you need something, and you need somebody to wrap their arms around, then I can do that, because I can't wrap my arms around him. He's giving me a way to express my love for him by expressing my love for you. And let's face it, in this life where there's a lot of storms and difficulties, there are a whole lot of people who need love. There are a whole lot of people who need encouragement. There are a whole lot of people who just say, I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. And if you know that TV commercial, I mean, a commercial would show, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm sitting right beside you until we get through this together, because that's what my Lord would do. Because I love him, I love you, 
Because he loved me and he loves you. And therefore, we are to build our lives on him. We are to build our lives on his teaching. But we are to build our lives not on the sense of the do's and the don'ts, but we're to build our lives on the relationship that we have with him. And that relationship is a part of doing what he has called us to do. So I encourage you, nothing we can do about yesterday, nothing we can do about last half hour. That's the awesome thing about the relationship with God. He's always willing to give us not a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance, but a 1,743,572 chances. And then 73 and 74. Because he loves you that much. I dare say you'll find no one else will love you anymore. So build our lives on that relationship. And all God's people said, 